was reading a theology book, and I turned the page, and I saw something that was striking and thought-provoking at the same time. Because there, in black and white, in front of me, in the middle of the page, separated by space above it and below it, were these three words, God is nowhere. I was startled by this, and I wondered if perhaps the author had suddenly fallen prey to atheism, or perhaps even if he was rejecting the idea, the notion of God altogether. Was that possible? Well, certainly not. That was not the intention of this author. But what was his point? Why was it that he expressed himself this way so startlingly in black and white on the page that was before me? Well, his point is simply this. God cannot be confined to or limited to a particular place. God cannot be confined to or limited to a particular place. He's emphasizing the fact for us that God is not like you and God is not like me. There is a familiar phrase that we use oftentimes to express our own limitations, and it goes like this. You can't be in two places at the same time. That's true of us. We are here right now at this moment. We are not in some other location. We are limited creatures. We might wish for more. It might be our desire in one way or another to be able to be present in more places than one at the same time, but we can't. You are only where you are at any given time. Now, we tend to make God over in our own image, and we may even intend, we may do this unintentionally, but in doing so, we limit him, and in this case, we limit him to one place. That phrase, God is nowhere, profoundly challenges this idea. It expresses very helpfully to us the doctrine of God's omnipresence. That is, that God is everywhere at all times. One Puritan writer, Nicholas Byfield, put it beautifully. I quote from him. God may be truly said to be everywhere and nowhere. God may truly be said to be everywhere and nowhere. Sometimes theologians put it this way. They say that God has no local mode. That is, unlike us, the essence or the being of God is not contained in any single space. Now, David expresses this truth to us here in Psalm 139, in a portion of the psalm that is intended to be of praise to God and comfort to God's people. Now, we'll especially focus on verses 7 through 12 this afternoon, but let's begin by noticing some things about the first six verses, because they also speak to us something very profound about the person of God. Verses 1 through 6 speak to us of God's omniscience. That is, that God knows all things fully and completely. Look at them again with me. As David contemplates his own relationship to the Lord, he recognizes that God knows him through and through, and that God is with him wherever he is. That God knows his thoughts, whether God, uh, that God knows all of his thoughts, he sees all of his ways, he is even able to 
David is able to confess that before a word comes forth from his tongue, the Lord knows what it is that David will say. God fully knows all things completely. God does not need to collect information. There is no investigation of knowledge. There's no need for him to search out various matters. God cannot learn because God knows all. Now, the Bible teaches us that there are some things that God cannot do. We're told quite explicitly that God cannot lie. In this case, God cannot learn because he knows all things. He knows them immediately, and he knows them intuitively. God cannot be surprised by any thought or any action in the world over which he is the sovereign. There is no aha moment for God where things suddenly come together and he uh, expresses uh, himself in the way that you and I might when we come to a realization of this or that. David here is teaching us this fact about God's knowledge. All things are present before him. And David takes great comfort in this fact. Look at verses 5 and 6. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David recognizes that through all the troubles and trials of his life, his Lord, the God of heaven and earth, knows these trials. Now, of course, David, we are told in Scripture, was a man after God's own heart. And he rejoices here that God knows his heart. And David knows that God's being is beyond his limited ability to understand. You see, David has an aha moment here that he expresses to us in which he recognizes his own limitations, but the absence of limitations in God. He's expressing to us the distinction that exists between the creator who made all things and himself as a creature who is subject to that great creator. And David takes great comfort in this fact. He is able to know that he lives his life before God and that God is the one who knows all things about him. Now, you might think, well, David says that God knows his heart. Isn't that a scary thing? Well, it is in one sense, but it's not in another. It is a scary thing for sinners that God knows all things about us, that he is aware of our sin, that even as our brother was speaking before about the the secret sins that we have within us, sin that's not simply outward but inward, God knows those things. And those who don't know Christ ought to be terribly afraid of the fact that God knows not only our outward actions, but also our inward actions. But David here speaks to us as a believer, as one who has been cleansed by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, and who experiences an understanding of that fact that the forgiveness of sin is extended to him. In this way, he can be glad that God knows his heart, because his heart has been purified by faith, and his heart looks up to the God of heaven and earth and worships him. And so David introduces us to the idea of the doctrine of God here by speaking about God's omniscience. But this helps us as we move in a little bit more depth into verses 7 through 12, which present to us a contemplation from David on the being of God. Now, verse 7 is an introductory question. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? 
Now, there's one sense in which this is a question that has an obvious answer. We call that a rhetorical question. That is, we, we ask a question knowing that intuitively the audience is able to give an answer to that question. But David sets it before us so that we will begin to think along with him. And he begins to answer in directional terms. Notice how he expresses himself in verse 8 and in verse 9. <coughs> the first answer that he gives to this question, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence, is to say, if I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, to the depths of the earth, you are there. So he speaks in directional terms, up and down. Now, this idea of heaven and Sheol occurs several times in Scripture. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 12. We find it in Amos chapter 9. And especially we find it in Romans 10 where Paul speaks to us about the gospel. In all three of those places, it is intended to help us to understand that there is a significant contrast between the two. And yet if you are present in either one, God himself is still there. God is in heaven. We expect David to say this to us. But then he says that God is in Sheol, God is in the grave, God is in the place of the dead as well. Wherever we might go, up or down, God is present and God is there. Now this might bring to your mind a question, is not hell separation from God? Well, first off, David is not specifically speaking about hell, he's speaking about Sheol, which is the Old Testament word for the, the place of the dead. But even in hell, there is a presence of God. The problem of the souls who deny the Lord Jesus, who refuse to believe in him, is not that they will be separated forever from the absolute presence of God, but rather that they will be separated from the beauty and the glory of God as he presents himself to us in Jesus Christ. But they will be present forever and ever in the wrath of God as God expresses himself in judgment upon their unbelief. Please forgive me, I explained before the Sunday school hour that I've been struggling today with allergies, and those allergies seem to be making themselves known. Now, not only does David look up and down, but in verse 9, in picturesque or poetic language, David speaks about the east and he speaks about the west. Not only is it true when we think of God vertically, up and down, it's also true when we think of God's presence horizontally to the east and to the west. Think about David's language with me. Beautiful pictures. He says, if I take the wings of the morning. Now that's intended to speak to us about dawn. And of course, in all the world, dawn takes place in the east. It's that moment when the sun breaks the plane of the horizon of the earth and the beams of light shine forth. They spread quickly as if they are wings. David uses that in a picturesque sense to turn our attention to sunrise and the rapid spread of light from east to west as the sun touches the horizon. In fact, um, if we were to uh, ask the question, where is it dawn right now in the world? Somewhere on the other side of the Pacific is about... Uh, where it would be, Tokyo or, or perhaps on the Chinese coast. That's approximately where dawn would be right now. They're experiencing 
what David describes here. Listen to Malachi 4.2. For you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You see, David here looks to the sunrise, he looks to the east, and he knows that God is there. But then David also turns his eyes to the other end of the horizon, and he speaks about God being in the west. Notice the language of the latter part of verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning or dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Now, if you know your geography of the Holy Land, you know that the sea rests on the west side of the Holy Land. From that place, the sea is to the west, and if you were to stand on the beach and look to the western horizon, as far as you could see and beyond, all that you would know is there is water. That's the, the, west, the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea looking west. And so he's using picturesque language here to say, if I go up, if I go down, if I go to the east, if I go to the west, God is there. In four ways, he could have expanded this, couldn't he? But he's simply speaking to us in symbolic language in four ways, in four places. Wherever I might go, wherever I might be, there is God. I can't escape from him. I can't hide underneath into the caves of the earth. I can't go up to the highest point. I can't flee from him to the dawn in the morning or the sunset at the end of the day. God is there wherever I am. Wherever I happen to be, God is there. And he draws out that conclusion in verse 10. Whether he goes up or down, uh, east or west, there your hand will lead me and your right hand will guide me. And in verses 11 and 12, he tells us that even the darkness cannot hinder God. Now what does darkness do? Darkness hides us. Darkness obscures us. Evil deeds are done in darkness because darkness is able to cover us. But this doesn't happen with God. Though other humans may not be able to see us when it comes to be dark and we are able to hide our deeds, that's not true of God because God is there and God sees. You see, David is using this kind of language to say to us, God is everywhere. Isaiah 66, 1 says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. These texts are telling us that everything that is not God has been created by God. And think about it like this. Place, as we know it, was created by God. He made heaven and he made earth a created thing. The Lord does not contain himself within his own creation, even the heavens that he has made. That's impossible. There is God and there is everything else. And David is calling us to this wonderful contemplation of this fact. Now, brothers and sisters, let's be honest. This is beyond our ability to comprehend fully. We can't quite get this because we are limited creatures. That's how God has made us. But he's drawing this great contrast between himself and the God that he serves, wanting us to remember the fact that there's nothing, there's nothing apart from God that is greater than he himself is. Jeremiah 23, 24 asks the question, 
Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? You see, it's true that God is everywhere and God is nowhere. And this calls us to bow down before him. Now, (coughs) someone may have an objection. But wait a minute, brother. Wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say... There are a couple of things that we need to consider that the Bible says. Let's think about uh, three different objections. The first one is this. But God is depicted on a throne in heaven in the word of God itself. We could turn to the call of the prophet Isaiah recorded for us in the sixth chapter of his prophecy. You remember the story. He says, I saw the Lord seated upon his throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. There were angelic beings bowing down before him. And when he saw the Lord, he was suddenly aware of his own sinfulness and he fell down. He receives forgiveness and then he receives a call to go into the service of the Lord and declare to God's people his greatness though he knows that no one will listen to him as he preaches. If we were to turn to Ezekiel chapter 1, we would have a similar experience. We would see there that the prophet also has a vision of God upon a throne. And perhaps the most obvious that first comes to mind is the description that the apostle John gives to us in the fourth and fifth chapters of the book of Revelation, where after he is caught up to heaven... He sees the eternal one upon a throne, seated upon the throne, four living creatures, uh, 24 elders, a multitude of worshipers, and then the Lamb is present, and then the sevenfold Spirit of God is present. Isn't God depicted to us in in the Bible on a throne in heaven? And the answer that we must give is, of course he is. And all of these things are true. But they tell us that God manifests his presence to us upon his throne. But none of these texts are intended to limit our Lord God to one specific place. In heaven, he shows his glory and he shows his grace to creatures in order that we might worship him properly. That is, he stoops to our limitations to assist us so that we might be able to serve him. But we have to make a distinction. And the distinction is that though these verses teach us a truth, they are not the fullness of the truth, you see. They help us to conceive something. They help us to recognize that this is true of God. We are to bow down before him in all of his glory and his majesty. Well, at the same time, we confess that God is everywhere and God is nowhere. Think about the words that Solomon Uh, spoke at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. He said this, Will God dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I build. Now, wasn't the temple that Solomon built a place where there was a manifestation of the presence of God upon the earth? In fact, wasn't that manifestation of the presence of God so powerful that neither Solomon as king nor the Levites who ministered on that day were able to do their jobs? All that they could do was bow down and worship because the tangible presence of God was so powerful. 
But does that mean that God had left heaven and come down to earth? That he was no longer in heaven for those moments while the temple was being dedicated? Of course not. It simply means that he showed himself in his glory, his majesty, and his power to Solomon and the Levites and all of the Israelites who were gathered in Jerusalem on that day. The prophet Isaiah, again, understood this principle when he says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. It's not that God moves back and forth from the high and holy place to the heart of the humble suppliant on earth, but rather that God is present in heaven and on earth, in the east and in the west. Wherever we go, God is present. And so we want to say that these texts of Scripture that depict to us the fact that God is upon a throne in heaven are true because that's where God manifests himself to us, but they are not intended to limit God to that particular place. He has created that place. It's separate from him. It's not like him. Now, there's a, a similar objection that could be presented to us and it says this, it goes something like this. What about those texts of Scripture that speak so frequently about the right hand of God? Now, in our previous hour, we were looking at an overview of the Psalms, and we mentioned that Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most frequently cited quotation from the, Old Test uh, from the book of Psalms in the New Testament. Remember what it says? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. That language is used several times. Well, it's, it's in Psalm 110, but it's used several times in the New Testament. It picks up on this. When Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost and wants to speak to the Jews, uh, calling them to faith in Christ, he reminds them that this Jesus, whom you crucified, has now been exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. When Jesus speaks to his disciples about the judgment that will come, he says that the, they will be separated on the right and on the left. Maybe you remember the incident where the mother of uh, James and John came to Jesus and said, when you enter into your kingdom, would you put my sons at your right hand and at your left hand? You see, there are many instances where, where this appears in Scripture. What is this about? And doesn't this seem to contradict the doctrine that we find in Psalm 139? Well, once again, no, it doesn't. Because we must understand that this language of being at the right hand of God is a symbolic representation of power and authority. But once again, it's not intended to limit the locality of God. Is there a place that can be called the right hand of God? Of course there is. But that doesn't limit God to the place where his right hand is present. It's a symbol of the fact that he is eternally powerful, eternally great, eternally majestic, and so he is able to express his power and his glory there. Now the third and perhaps most significant objection that someone would bring, they would say, okay, brother, you're relying on symbolism in the other two. What about Jesus? What about Jesus? 
Doesn't he have a local presence here on earth during his ministry and now in heaven? Isn't it true that it can be said about Jesus that when he lived on the earth, he really and truly walked upon the earth and that people were able to see him, that they were able to touch him, that they could observe him as he slept, as he ate, as he drank, as he did all of the things that belong to humans? Isn't that true? And doesn't that mean that he has a local presence? And when he was exalted to the right hand of God, when his disciples watched as he ascended into the clouds, as recorded in Acts chapter 1, doesn't that tell us that he had a local presence? Well, our answer has to be the same answer that we gave to the other two objections. Yes, of course he does. Everything about our humanity belongs to him. His humanity is a true humanity. It has all of the limitations that our humanity does. Jesus' humanity is not omnipresent. It's not everywhere. But Jesus is not simply human. Jesus is also deity. He is divine. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity who took to himself humanity. He is a man who is joined with true deity. His human nature, body and soul, has all of the physical limitations of all humans. That is true of him. But his divine nature has all of the perfections of deity. His godhood is not limited by his humanity. In fact, his godhood is, is, shares all of the characteristics of deity that belong to Father and Spirit. In his godhood, he is everywhere present in a real and true way. You see, this is one of the wonders of the incarnation. And it's a marvelous truth that we are to consider about our Savior. We have right now a man who is seated at the right hand of the power of God in heaven, but we also have one who is present with us. You know, we believe, for example, that preaching, that true preaching is the visitation of Christ to his people, speaking through the preacher, ministering his word, attended by the power of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus is really and truly God. We bow down before him and worship. So even the introduction of the limitations of the human nature of our Lord Jesus don't in any way undermine the truth of this doctrine. In his deity, he shares all of the true characteristics, the virtues, the attributes of God, God the Father, and God the Spirit. God is everywhere, and God is nowhere. Now, that causes us then to ask the question, okay, brother, what does this doctrine mean for us? Let me suggest to you a couple of things that it ought to mean. First off, and maybe most commonly when you hear sermons from Psalm 139 that speak about this, or you read sermons or you read books that speak about this, most commonly the application will be a demonstration of the foolishness of sinning in God's presence. Because God is everywhere, he knows where, that we are sinning even when we are by ourselves. That's a true application, but that's not really David's point. I, I won't dispute the appropriate nature of making that application from this text. It is true. Boys and girls, you may be out of sight from your parents, but God sees you. Moms and dads, you may be out of sight from each other, but God sees you. When you're on the job, your, your employer, your manager, your supervisor might not be watching you, but God sees you, and that calls us 
to obedience and to holiness in all circumstances. And that's true. But that's not the central point of the text. What David is doing here is seeking to bring great comfort to God's people. That's the point of verse 10. Whether he goes up or down, east or west, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. This is, this is David's great point. Wherever we go, God is there. He's with us in the safe and easy places. He's with us in those places that are happy, those places that we like, those places that we enjoy. He is there with us. But he is also with us in the dangerous places. He's with us when we must go to places that face difficulty. In fact, David can say in another psalm that many of you know by heart, even though I walk through the valley, you know what's coming. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what does David say? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Wherever we go and whatever faces us, even if it's the shadow of death, We know that God is there. He is near to us. You might go to the doctor's office or to the blood laboratory or the intensive care unit. God is there. He is near you when your car breaks down on the highway. He is there when he sees evil men who would seek to come against you. God is there. Brothers and sisters, we must remind ourselves of this and strengthen ourselves with this truth. The Lord will never let you out of his sight. I've been trying to preach this to myself for years, reminding myself that whatever circumstances I face, God is there. And I can trust him to help me. I can call upon him. And he sees and he knows. Several years ago, my wife and I were in Britain with our daughter Susie. She was just a little girl, so... She's 26, uh, no, how old is she? 23 now, so it must have been about 20 years ago. And we were on our way home. We had to leave wherever it was that we were and take a train to London so that we could get to the airport and catch our plane. And the the, the platform at the train station was extremely crowded. And along came the train, and we had our luggage, and we had all kinds of people around, and I grabbed the bags And I went onto the train as quickly as I could, and my wife came onto the train, and suddenly I realized in a moment that I lost sight of my little girl. And I was frightened, terrified by the thought that we might lose her because you have to get on and off those trains very quickly because when they're ready, they close the doors and you're gone. And for that moment, I panicked. I was terrified because she was out of my sight. Now, my wife will tell you, She saw her all the time, so she didn't have the experience of panic that I did. But what happened was a a very nice lady, don't know who she was, saw what was happening and took Susie by the hand and brought her onto the train to us so that she was restored to our presence. You see, we human parents may lose sight of our children, or even our children may grow up and leave us. But we have the promise of Scripture that God the Lord will never, ever do this. You can trust in him. You see, it's a mysterious doctrine to say that the God of heaven and earth is everywhere and nowhere. But David intends it to be a comforting doctrine for us, to help us, whatever the circumstances of our life may be, 
the expectation that we all may have unless Christ returns is that we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we can know that even there, he is with us. Let me give you another application. This is from that wonderful Puritan Thomas Watson in his book, A Body of Divinity, which is an exposition of the Westminster Assembly Shorter Catechism. He says this, If God be everywhere present, then for a Christian to walk with God is not impossible. God is not only in heaven, he is on earth too, Isaiah 66, 1. Heaven is his throne, there he sits. The earth is his footstool, there he stands. He is everywhere, everywhere present, therefore we may come to walk with God. He cites Genesis 5, 21, Enoch walked with God. If God were confined to heaven, a trembling soul might think, how can I converse with God? How can I walk with him who lives in the highest place, above the upper region? But God is not confined to heaven. He is omnipresent. He is above us. He is about us. He is near us. Then he cites Acts chapter 17. That is, when Paul says, he is not far from us. In Psalm 82.1, he stands in the congregation of the mighty. He is present with us. God is in every one of us. So that here on earth we may walk with God. In heaven the saints rest with him, on earth they walk with him. To walk with God is to walk by faith. We are said to draw near to God and to see him, seeing him who is invisible, to have fellowship with him. Our fellowship is with the Father, thus we may take a turn with him every day by faith. That is, we may go for a walk with him. Brothers and sisters, today and tomorrow and throughout the week, because God is here, you may walk with him. Whatever circumstance of life you face, you may depend upon the fact that God is there and God is present. You can speak to him. You can depend upon him. You can ask him for help. You can trust that his spirit is with you. And you can know of his grace and his goodness and his mercy. Let me suggest to you, though, that there's one more application, and it's the greatest of them all, and that is that God is with us in his son, Jesus Christ, whose name... Emmanuel is translated God with us. It's true that God is everywhere, but there's a special way that we can say that God is with us in Jesus Christ because God became man. God became a man who lived a life of holy obedience to the law of God, and then died the death of a sinner upon the cross and rose from the dead on the first day of the week, ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And everyone who trusts in him may receive forgiveness and everlasting life because God is with us, because Emmanuel is with us. You see, this psalm calls us to bow down in worship before him because it is good for us to know that God is nowhere and that God is everywhere, and especially that God is with us in Jesus Christ his only beloved son. So trust in him and walk with him and strengthen your faith. Preach this to yourself every day. God is here. God has saved me through Christ. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray together.